On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Cecilia Rabess. Cecilia works as a data scientist at Google. She was previously an associate at Goldman Sachs. Her stunning debut novel, Everything's Fine, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Cecilia. Thank you extremely so very much for having me. Let's start by telling our listeners a little bit about Everything's Fine. Everything's Fine is a story about two very different young people who fall kind of reluctantly, complicatedly, but passionately in love. So our protagonist, Jess, is a young Black woman. She's a liberal, and she meets Josh, who's a young white man. He's conservative. And so I think in a lot of ways, the story is pretty familiar. There's this idea of opposites, maybe, or something like opposites attracting, But I think what makes this story a little bit different is that it's set in the years between 2008 and 2016. So it's bookended by Obama and Trump's presidencies. And if you recall, a time when I feel like the message or the popular narrative was around hope and unity to a time when I think the message was quite different, is probably still quite different. And so the arc of that transition or that devolution in the popular culture is kind of mapped by the arc of their relationship. It's a story not only about two people, but it's also, I think, a story about something bigger about America and what it means to live and love in polarized times. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. And you said, and you accomplished this, that you wanted to write a novel that asked more questions than it answered. And in your author's note, I'd like to read that. You said questions like, what does it mean to be a black woman moving through a white world when your relationship with your blackness is constantly being tested, not only by the man you love, but also by your own insecurities? What happens in a relationship when one person says politics and the other says my humanity? And what if this isn't a love story that asks, will they, but should they? And I just... I love those questions. They're big and thoughtful and complicated. So how much of these mm. questions did you did you have in mind going into it? And how much came during the writing process? Great question. You're going to hear a little bit of the origin story of this book now. I started writing in 2018. So it was right in the middle of Trump's presidency. And even a lot of people on the left in particular were kind of still grappling with what had this country become and who were we and was it who we thought we were or who we want to be? So lots of big questions, I think, in that moment. And also at the time, the discourse felt like it was just going ever more sideways. So like, you know, it was just kind of like left and right, shouting back and forth, an increasingly bright line. And so it was kind of in this environment that this book was born. I didn't really set out to write like a political novel per se. I actually always loved love stories and wanted to write a love story. Um, But I felt like a lot of the time, even the best love stories, there's kind of this spectrum that they reside along where it's kind of on the one hand, bubblegum rom-com, and then on the other, it's like war-torn lovers and somebody dies at the end. And I, (laughs) I really wanted to write something in between, but I didn't know, you know, when I sat down in front of my laptop, in front of the blank page, like what that would look like. So here I was, like, wanting to write a novel, but not really knowing where to begin. And it was 2018, and I read this article in New York Magazine that was called, like, this headline, 
Donald Trump is destroying my marriage. And I think at the time that was kind of, it was pretty triggering actually. Like it wasn't like, oh, funny article. I was just like, ugh, like I'm so sick of this narrative that like we can all just agree to disagree or the, the false equivalent sometimes between like, you know, that question around like politics on the one hand, but someone's humanity on the other. So the article like drew me in regardless. And it sort of like was intriguing that, you know, in the context of this very intimate relationship, you know, with a partner or loved one, the like politics had sort of like, I don't know, like found their way in. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, huh, I'm writing a love story. I don't have any characters. I don't have a setting. I don't have a central tension. I do have all these questions that are percolating. And then I have this article that's kind of about like what love stories look like sort of in this polarized time. And that was sort of like my way in. So that was the spark of the novel. So I, I started the novel with those questions, but not necessarily knowing what I was going to do with them. And I think there's still questions that I don't necessarily have answers to, but yeah. I was kind of like working, working it out or like writing towards that, you know, as I drafted the novel. Yeah, well, you got us yeah. right in with it. If it's okay, I want to read a little bit about kind of what you were just talking about. It makes me think of the moment where, and I love the line in your author's note. It's like someone says politics and the other person says my humanity. Mm-hmm. And then Jess is kind of thinking about their differences at one point. And she's, you write, I'm black, you're white, I'm liberal, you're conservative. Said that way, it almost sounds like poetry. Opposites attract, the best kind of love story. But that's not quite right, or at least it's not what just means. They're not really opposites, more like two people playing for different teams. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you capture all of this in the book. And I want to start talking about Jess a little bit more because I was rooting for her so hard, right? Mm-hmm. She is, this is a, it's a very relational novel. There is so much of the push and the pull between the two of them, but Jess really emerges as the hero of the story, right? The one that you're rooting for and you're watching her figure herself out. You're watching her make mistakes. You're watching her find her voice and I I was just rooting for her the whole time. So tell us about Jess, how you created her, what challenges you faced when writing her, and maybe some of the inspiration. I don't know if I should reveal this, but when I started writing, I actually think I thought of Jess, the protagonist, as kind of an avatar of myself. You know, it's my first novel. Like, it's quite a big challenge to put pen to paper and then, like, not stop until you've written 100,000 words. So I was like, I'll make it easy for myself. I'll just, like drop myself into this storyline and then she'll do what I would do or she'll have like the thoughts that I would have and that quickly became untenable just because Mm -hmm. I realized I wouldn't actually end up in this particular situation I probably wouldn't date this guy in the first place so there wouldn't even be a novel so then I kind of had to think harder about who is this person or what kind of person would find themselves in this situation and how could I make such a person feel real and relatable and someone that you wanted to root for. And so then she sort of became her own person. And I think the main way I tried to like imbue her with humanity was sort of referring back to those questions. Like, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, a black woman who's 
struggling with, you know, some internalized racism or who feels like she is not really seen, like, how would that look under these particular circumstances, like in this day and time? And so I guess in a lot of ways, like I can also, as a black woman who's spent a lot of time in white spaces, relate to that. But I think it was more just like, who would this person necessarily be for this story to work rather than what would I do? Yeah, the way you've set up the push and pull, you never, there's no moment where you're like, Jess, what are you, like, how did you even get here? It's really just a slow roll of decisions and things that happen and moments that they share. And it's like, by the end, you might feel that way, but Mm -hmm. there's no moment in there where you're like, and I can't, I can't even keep going because I don't get this. It's just a slow roll of what's happening. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I think that did take a little bit of work because like I said, I was like trying to draw a bit from my own experience. And actually a lot of the times I would get feedback from like my editor in particular, or like feedback partners, and they'd be like, it's working, except for like this one thing just doesn't add up. And it would be like the one thing that was from my real life. So I I let go of all that. Right, right. I think it's very common, though, as you said, particularly with a first novel to to start with a lot of yourself. And then Mm -hmm. I think you see how maybe that's not going to work for the story. Mm -hmm. But So I also want to talk about Josh, of course. Mm -hmm. If Jess is our complicated hero, Josh is our complicated villain. (laughs) He, I mean, right? It's, he, it is a love story, as you said, but it's complicated. Like everything we're discussing here. I mean, he makes her feel seen, but also invisible. Mm -hmm. He cares for her truly and defends her, but also sometimes makes her feel helpless and insecure Mm -hmm. at times. They are, what, which is something I love, they are true like intellectual rivals. And I think you write that so well. They're sparring. To me, is a form of, of connection mm-hmm. that is really palpable with them. But it is truly complicated. So tell us about Josh and your development of him and, and how you yeah. came to Josh. Yeah, so I definitely... And, you know, reasonable people may disagree. I don't think of him as, like, the villain of the story. I think of him more as a foil for Jess. Because in a lot of ways, besides being a love story, this is also a coming-of-age story. And I definitely wanted to kind of, like, play with some of those tropes. And I think one that I love to see in fiction and, you know, film and TV is, like, when you meet someone and then, like, they help you kind of, like, see who you are and then maybe, like, that brings you together. But I think in this story, it kind of like maybe tears them apart, which is interesting because I think he does teach Jess a little bit, you know, who she is and like Mm. what kind of person she wants to be and maybe even what kind of person she has the right to be. But it's maybe not in the ways that, you know, one would hope or expect. So for him, I think because, you know, many people may see him as the villain, one thing I wanted to get right was just sort of not making him feel like a caricature or just like kind of an assemblage of like random annoying traits. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I achieved that, it did take a little bit of work, but kind of funnily enough is by imbuing him with a lot more of like myself than even Jess, like some of his personality quirks or his hangups or like his way of seeing the world, not his politics in particular, but like just his general like, approach I think is very similar to mine and I think that was how I was able to kind of make him feel like 
a real person and maybe hopefully someone that you connect with in some way, even if it's not all of the ways or some important ways, because yeah, it, it can be tough when you're writing someone who, you know, may sort of intrinsically rub people or, you know, my target yeah. readers the wrong way. Yeah. I, I'm curious when you got, or, or how did he evolve over drafts? Did you get feedback? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's too terrible or we need to make him more terrible because I'm always fascinated by that. When you make someone who is unlikable, I'm using air quotes just mm-hmm. in general with that word, because we don't really even know what it means, but yeah, that some people will like to read it because it's so bad or people want to relate more. So I was curious about how he evolved over drafts for you. Yeah, he definitely changed a bit. And I think you're right to assume that like he got better from draft to draft. Like I think the first draft, maybe he was like a lot, you know, he still is a lot yeah. by the end, but like, I think for the most part, you know, you can understand if not sort of really appreciate the relationship. And I think what is tricky, like what was most tricky about striking that balance between like, you know, how likable he was or like how believable the relationship was, was really around like, where is the line? And I think the line is sort of a moving target. And when I say the line, I mean, like, at what point do you sort of have to like, let someone go? Or do you say this person, you know, is too toxic, or this person just can't be in my life. And I think that is something that looks different. Um, You know, I don't know if it's the same for everyone. But like, in 2016, the line was in a different place than it was in 2018, than it was in 2021, when I was revising the manuscript. And I think it's probably gonna look different. Like in 2024, we have another election coming up. So I feel like it's all quite complicated by like whatever is happening, you know, at a macro level. And so I think, you know, if, if even I were to like write the book in a different time and place or someone were to read the book in a different time and place, like it could work or not work depending on like what context you're bringing to the reading of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think I had to get to a point where it felt like the line was like just maybe like at a point where Maybe as a reader, you wouldn't cross it, but you might understand why someone in Jess's circumstances would. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. Absolutely. It does. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you do a great job of moving that line for the two of them throughout what they're willing to tolerate, what Jess is willing to tolerate, what feedback she gets. And that's part of the timeline. You know, college Josh is just a just a no right like it's just a no but he evolves in different ways and you keep moving that line around for and then she changes in different ways too and so you keep moving that line around for us yeah but he and he also says things like I'm I'm not the same person I was in college Mm -hmm. I am evolving and and he does as he's because I take in new information and you can't argue with him about that he's very smart very intellectual certainly it's not for lack of information um Mm -hmm. but again it's how he applies it but i do think you're you're they're outwardly acknowledging too that that opinions change and the information that form their opinions change and so it's just always very nuanced which is what i think makes this whole novel so incredible but i want to come back to that question in a little bit 
more specifically do you think people can change? Yeah, and yeah. I want to read a little a, a little piece from it. But I want to talk about the setting of this mm-hmm. novel. It is basically a character mm-hmm. in and of itself. The world of finance, the hours, the hazing, the archetypal bosses, the office setups. I work in finance, worked in finance at UBS, not Goldman Sachs. Okay. So it's really not the same level, but I it well. was still <laughs> so familiar. Yes, it's still so familiar to me. And even the level of being a woman is just, you know, you're you're one of the only. So I could relate to some pieces of that, too. This is something you did pull from your real life experience. Is that correct? You know what? Not as much as perhaps might seem like it from my bio, because I worked at Goldman Sachs in London, for one. So that's quite different than Hmm. the New York experience the American yeah 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 and then I was only in finance for like you know a couple years and mostly my career has been spent in tech which has a lot of similar challenges but it's just like a completely different vibe and so I could you know almost skewer tech like you know 10 ways to Tuesday compared to finance (laughs) that is maybe a different project but yeah so I did definitely draw on the experience of being like a woman at work and like corporate America, but like the finer details, I had to kind of like harass people that I know in finance still and (laughs) confirm whether or not like people do or don't use mice, for example. Yes, (laughs) that was great. That was great. Yeah. So, so it was a lot of research and a lot of, you know, just confirming ideas because it really comes alive. The whole setting, right? And Kate doesn't even work in finance. And no, I work in big law though, which is very similar in some ways. And no people in finance. So you've got yeah the traders versus the bankers and Mm -hmm. and the different Mm -hmm. attitudes around that and the whole appetite for risk and all that. Yeah, I think you really, really nailed it. Yeah, definitely. So, I think, yeah, work lends oh, itself well to yeah. social commentary. Mm-hmm. For sure. I actually want uh, you yes. to skewer the tech boy world. I think that would actually be, <laughs> I'm hoping perhaps that I is mean, where you're yeah, going next. I was, oh, yes. that's what <laughs> okay, I was hoping good. for. <laughs> so I do want to talk about the title. Mm. Everything's fine um, without you know, giving anything away. We don't do spoilers or anything, but, you know, it it's something Jess says throughout the novel that she's fine or everything's fine. Mm-hmm. It actually, wasn't that in Fleabag where she kept saying she was fine all the time? And, and, and of course you're watching, you're like, you are not fine. Everything is not fine. But it is something that people say, right? It's an expression that people often use to put other people at ease, right? It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Like, don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Or they're really trying to convince themselves that everything's yes. fine. So tell us about the title and, and, you know, what you were exploring with this theme. We also kind of always love to know if that was always the title or if you had a different working title. Yeah. So. I can start with the last part of the question. I feel like I'm going to embarrass myself here, but I did have other titles for the novel. One of them was The Just Problem, which is a line from sort of the middle of the book. And like she finds this mm-hmm. post-it note that says The Just Problem. Yeah, um, I love that. But yeah, I don't think that it's necessarily that she's the problem. I just thought it was kind of like cute callback to like the middle mm-hmm. of the book. So that was quickly scrapped. I also had an idea to call it American Love Story because I think, like, it must must have been, like, 2018, 19, like, 
everything was American this, American that. There was American marriage. There was American mm-hmm. horror story, which I think mm-hmm. could have also worked as a title. <laughs> but that also just fell flat because I felt like, yeah, there was like something a meta point I wanted to make about like layers or like complexity or like seeing things in one way, but they're actually another. And so that didn't quite capture it either. So I don't actually remember at what point I got to everything's fine. But once I got there, I was like, yes, this is, this is it. This is like Mm -hmm. the top of the mountain. But basically I think why it works is because as you've said, You know, you can be lying to yourself, you can be lying to someone else, you can be trying to be a good guy or a bad guy. Like, I think a lot of the times when Jess says everything's fine to her dad, she's really trying to, like, reassure him or, like, be the person she thinks he wants her to be. Like, it's all sort of, like, coming from a good place. You know, I think when she lies to herself, maybe it's not coming from such a good place. She's just trying to, I don't know, ignore some important or uncomfortable truths. I also think, though, not that necessarily Josh says this too frequently in the novel, but like when he says everything's fine, I think it has a completely different sort of inflection because I think he is quite blinkered. You know, he has like a very small aperture of the world. He sort of, I think they both, in a lot of ways, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think they're sort of both products of their environment and they, you know, rise to the challenges that the world presents to them. And I think the world just doesn't ask as much of him as it does of her. But, you know, maybe if she was like a white guy born in Greenwich, like she'd be exactly like Josh. Like, so I think that was something I was interested in. But yeah, when he says everything's fine, I think it's because he genuinely believes it. And so I think it's interesting to just sort of explore all of the different ways there are to be and see the world and, Everything's Fine felt kind of like quippy and funny, which I also hope the book is. And yeah, just liked it from the beginning. Yeah. I I want to read something that you just, that you were saying, the difference between his everything's fine and her her everything's fine. This comes early in the book. And, and he's basically saying, what what's the problem? Yeah. We're in the same place. We're the same. We went to the same college. We're at the same work. And Jess says, I want the benefit of the fucking doubt. I want people to recognize something great inside me, whether it's there or not, and to nurture it and celebrate it, to tell me that I'm brilliant and wonderful and that they cherish my goddamn gifts to the world. I want people to say, Jess is here too, and she's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I just had never seen such, yeah, I mean, the benefit of the doubt is gold. And that is... That was just such a powerful passage, and it comes very early in the book, and I'm like, okay, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, and I think when Josh says it, or and he's a stand-in, I think, for just people generally at times, what they're saying to you when they say it is just like, what's your problem? You know, why are Mm -hmm. you overreacting? Implicit, it's just a way to suggest to you that what you're feeling is not right or is too much. Like, it's fine. You're fine. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. really kind of infuriating and I was thinking like this does have so many meanings and it really it's perfect title really yeah and his always come with the there's a couple of sections that end besides I'm a moderate besides I'm not a racist I was never a racist and that's always his yeah he's like the kind of person who like if he 
starts a sentence with like statistically speaking he's like that ends the conversation like i win yeah. facts are the facts yeah. like yeah but yeah i think that's an interesting passage you just read because one thing i learned or have learned about like work in america and like being sort of a marginalized person is that if you ask for more people are like okay just like work hard put your head down whatever it is and it's like sometimes i don't want to work hard i just want to get what you're getting like for free <laughs> yeah. and i think when you <laughs> like that it sounds insane but i think that is sort of the feeling that a lot of people have they just kind of want to like bask in mediocrity like can't we all just get away with things um (laughs) not everybody wants to be like number one so i think that you know she's i think being somewhat facetious there but i think that's genuinely a feeling that a lot of people share yeah yeah yes and it it just is the wake-up call to you don't even realize how much you were just born with the benefit of that doubt fitting in here looking like these other people uh, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i want to continue on the on the everything's fine it escalates as the book goes on you you, it appears many many more times in the pages and that works for the timeline but we also know that for Jess it started as a kid and there is a a a story she tells about her father and they're playing a silly game of kind of roughhousing and she gets hurt and I'd like to read a little more if that's okay she says She saw stars. She wanted to throw up. He wouldn't stop asking if she was okay. She could see her pain mirrored in his expression. Her lip quivered. His did too. She wanted to cry, but she could see that if she did, he would too. Her ears were ringing, but she swallowed her tears. Even worse than the throbbing in her head was seeing she could make her father this upset. She decided then that this was her least favorite feeling. Mm. Oh, I mean, I just have goosebumps reading that. Why leave that? I mean, I have to think this this passage means something to you other than that it's brilliant. What what how does it go with the story for you and Jess? Yeah, I think her relationship to her father is, you know, one of the more important relationships in the book. And I think that they are quite close, but she also withholds so much from him and I think the question could be why, like, why, if this is, you know, one of your favorite people, like, someone who's, you know, been a nourishing and, like, beautiful presence in your life, are you going to, like, you know, only call them once a week and then just say, like, the most trifling things? And I think it's because, you know, she feels this incredible, probably because it was just the two of them, like, they're all they have, this incredible sense of pressure to, like, get it right or make him proud or make him feel like she's doing fine even when she's not because I think she doesn't yeah she doesn't want him to like carry her burdens um and I think that's just probably because she's a sensitive person I think you know women tend to do that more than men daughters more than sons not to paint with like a really broad brush Yeah, Um, yeah yeah so I think that's what's happening there and I think that's perhaps also why I think her friends are, you know, there for her more than she, or they're willing to be there for her more than she asks them to or invites them to. And I think that's part of it as well. Like just trying to kind of swallow your pain so that other people, you know, don't have to carry it as well. And so it's noble in a sense, but I think it's also quite self-defeating. Yes. 
Well, that sort of goes with my next question, which has to do with the cover and the strawberry metaphor. It's an incredible cover, by the way, of a crushed strawberry. And Mm -hmm. it's clearly a metaphor, I think, for how uh, Jess decides it's fine to eat strawberries because she loves Josh and Josh loves them, even though she's allergic to them. And at one point, you know, goes into like shock, anaphylactic shock. And you know, by the end of the novel, Josh, you know, swears off the strawberries is some sort of act of love. But mm-hmm. to me, it seems like sort of a symbol of the ways, you know, either we sacrifice parts of ourselves in the interest of keeping the peace or the ways we hide parts of ourselves in the name of love. So mm-hmm. I want to hear your thoughts on it. And I know the authors don't design the covers. So yeah. but But you had the strawberries. Yeah, but you had the strawberries. It's a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just on the strawberry piece, I think, yeah, I was trying to kind of encapsulate the idea that, like, there's, like, things that feel good and things that are good, and they're often, you know, unfortunately not the same things. Um, Mm. And that's, yeah, I think one of the larger points that the novel is trying to make. Mm -hmm. Both, you know, I think as you read the novel, you're supposed to sort of, I hope, feel good a lot of the time. And then, you know, there's this idea of complicity when you sort of ask yourself, like, what's making me feel good and why? And like, interrogate that. And then I think, you know, just in terms of like Jess and like, the sort of back and forth she has with herself about like, how to be good and like, how her life like, is or isn't living up to like, you know, what her ideals are. I think that's sort of all the work that the strawberry is trying to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the cover, I think, came about because it is like, you know, one of the like more, I think, striking symbols in the novel. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah. the brief that I gave the designers was I want the cover <laughs> to be arresting. <laughs> like, I want people to like, be walking past it in the bookstore and stop and be like, wait, what? And so this is, I think, what they came up with. The, the There's been a few iterations, you know, like some version of like the strawberry and the big everything's fine font. Initially, it was going to be a different color, but like focus groups or like the marketing department was like, no, this color doesn't work. And so I actually got to choose this color scheme, this like white and blue and I chose it because I thought that there weren't this is very like tactical and strategic but I thought that there weren't a lot of literary fiction books that were white so I was like oh maybe like it'll stand out I don't know if that's true but that's (laughs) sort of how it got to be white the strawberry certainly stands out and it is arresting and if I was walking past it in a bookstore I would stop and do a double take so (laughs) mission accomplished I have two kids and they see lots of books. Mm-hmm. They both stopped, literally stopped when it was like just sitting on the couch or just sitting mm-hmm. on the, and was like, what is that cover? So yeah, it worked. <laughs> I mean, it really worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to that idea of whether people can change. And Josh makes an argument for himself when Jess kind of calls him out on, on saying something that she knows that he doesn't believe and then he says, 
Jess, he interrupts, the hallmark of an agile intellect is the ability to continuously accommodate and integrate new information, to regularly and systematically update one's mental model of the world. It's the scientific method. So you changed your mind? Yes. Why? Not one reason, but there have been a number of studies lately that kind of explicitly break down race and gender as being highly predictive of economic outcomes, even when controlling for things like parental income and education. It's compelling. So you read a research paper and now you're not racist. He looks at her. Ha, well, that's one way to frame it. He swivels back to face his computer. But for the record, I was never racist. I mean, this is a, it's an entertaining exchange. I don't think it's supposed to be indicative of humanity. But I was curious, do you think that people can change? Are there things that people can change about themselves but not change, and then not change other things. I'm just curious to hear what you think about that idea. Yeah, I don't think I have a really good answer because I don't really know because it's, I don't know if this is going to be a real tangent, but I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah, I love tangents. We're trying to yeah. get tangents. Okay, I love cool. tangents. So there's this movie, yes. Bridesmaids. It's hilarious. I highly recommend it. But oh, there's a scene yes. where yeah. these two like nemeses are like going back and forth, the main character, Kristen Wiig, and like the other best friend of her best friend who she hates rose burn yes and they're like you know people don't really change and then she's like but people do and then she's like yeah but no they don't really but then she's like no no but they sometimes do because they do i don't know it's just a really funny exchange where they're just going (laughs) back and forth and it doesn't really make sense and that's kind of how i feel about the question or the answer to mm-hmm. whether people change because I feel like yeah. in some ways people are who they are and actually I just had kids recently and it's amazing to see like how much of a human is like just baked right in like oh, from yeah. day one you kind of like are who you are in many many ways but then at the same time you know I learn and I hopefully grow And my perspectives evolve and I become, I hope, a little bit better every day. Not that that's, you know, what everybody's trying to do. So then I feel like there are differences, but are they meaningful? I I can't tell you. I definitely think that, you know, trying to change someone, especially in the context of a romantic relationship, is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I like to think that I'm different and better than I used to be. But at the same time, like I still, you know, when I was five years old, I was kind of into the same things I'm into now. Like I had yeah, this vibe yeah. and I probably will when I'm 85. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Well, I mean, Her- that is the perfect answer. It, it is. It really yeah. is because it's, and by the way, when I wrote the question, that's what I was hoping you would go with because mm-hmm. I mean, this book is, this book just speaks to how unclear so many of these big questions are and that the most important thing frankly is that they were asking them I in my opinion because there aren't definitive answers and definitive answers don't take into account a lot of other things so that was that was fantastic yeah and I love bridesmaids it's so so funny. good so good so funny yeah and we love tangents yeah but I guess speaking of changing or changing careers see how I did that there mm-hmm. um for your path to publication. I mean, we've read in your bio that, and you've mentioned that you worked in finance and then now in data science. Is that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Data scientists. We, the lawyers over here are like, we don't even know what that means, but it sounds very impressive, but it is 
then you've somehow gotten to the world of creative writing and published author. So just take us on that journey. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. I I think like so many writers have always loved to read. I've always loved books. Like I started writing my first journal when I was seven years old. My mom was like, why don't you write some things down? And that was kind of my way into writing. But I think also like a lot of writers, hopefully that's changing, but I didn't really think writing fiction was like a job, you know, certainly not a job where I could like earn money and pay the light bill. So I tried actually writing nonfiction because I was like, oh, I'll just be a journalist. That's a writer who makes money, who Mm -hmm. goes somewhere every day. But I really struggle with people like talking to people and calling sources on the phone. It just, I mean, it lasted for like maybe a week. So I was like, I guess I'm not cut out to be a writer, you know, and I went about my business and I've always loved numbers as well. So interestingly enough, I think there's like this unfortunate dichotomy that people create between like, you know, arts and sciences. Yeah. And I just don't see it. Like, I think that, you know, statistics in particular is like really fascinating way to tell stories. And there's always like, so much narrative. It's like a rich vein to tap for narrative. That's like what I love about being a data scientist. So anyway, I just did other things, you know, because I was like, I need to like make a living and (laughs) go to school and all that stuff. So I went to college for business stuff and I went to grad school for business stuff and I sort of became a business person. And that was, you know, fine while it lasted. I obviously have some things to say about it, which you can read about in the book. But I always had this like sort of nagging voice in the back of my head, this feeling that I was, you know, called to write. And then I, as a lot of people do, I turned 30 and I was like, okay, like, what is my life? Like, I was either going to like climb Kilimanjaro or (laughs) learn to cook or write a novel. And so that kind of was, I think, the point at which I decided to earnestly try to write. And I took some writing classes. I think I credit a lot of the writing workshops I've taken with getting me over the finish line. So I took a class for NaNoWriMo where you wrote 50,000 words as part of the class. And I wrote 50,000 words. I did not write a novel, unfortunately, but I was like, all right, I can at least like get something down. And then, you know, This was like a years long process, like subsequent workshops kind of like helped me learn craft and like figure out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. So that's kind of like a long way of saying that I just kind of decided that I wanted to write a novel. And then, you know, again, like thought I would always just write like a rom-com or something, but realized that I had a lot to say that wouldn't necessarily like fit perfectly into the container of a rom-com. So I kind of like I guess, have written a sort of take on a rom-com. So anyway, I wrote this book and it was, you know, I think lots of ups and downs, like lots of times, like my partner had to like scrape me off the floor because I was like, I can't do it. (laughs) Then I finished and I did query in like the very kind of like traditional way where you just like send emails to strangers like, will you read my book and then you represent it? And that is how I found my agent. I didn't actually query her. I queried someone at her agency 
who passed the manuscript along. So that actually happens. I was shocked because yeah. to me, right. if I wasn't interested, I just like go about my day. I wouldn't be like, right. oh, maybe my colleague is interested. Right. Or I might think that, you know, when they say that it's not for them, but it might be for someone else, that's just like BS. But their way of, yeah, yeah passing it off. Yeah. Um, but they yeah. really thought it was good for someone else. Yeah. So I met my agent through another agent and we sort of connected very quickly. And she also sold the book extremely quickly. Like I talked to her for the first time on over email, maybe on like a Friday. Then I, you know, talked to her IRL, let's say it was like the following Monday, agreed to work with her on Wednesday. We did like a couple of, I say rounds of revisions, but it was like emailing back and forth Yeah, yeah. for like two or three days. So that was like the weekend, the next weekend. Then she sent it out on like, the following Tuesday and by Thursday we had our first office. So it was like (laughs) such a whirlwind. And I remember talking to my mom about it and she was like, you haven't given anyone your social security number, have you? Because like, it just felt like a scam. (laughs) scam. You know? Like, oh my gosh. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was like a lot of, you know, just being in the trenches and then it all happened at once. Wow. I, I had a, similar situation it's like 10 years and then overnight <laughs> you're like oh what just happened yeah i guess that's yeah. how it goes like you know there's one day pre and then there's a day that's post yeah it's wild were yeah. you thinking a little saturn's return corinne with her oh at, i was at totally 30 suddenly yes. thinking what do you know what that is I she's like oh, no. <laughs> yeah corinne has to explain that but basically yeah. like people think they have midlife crises well for some people, it's when they're turning 30, astrologically yes. uh, speaking. It's right. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit more about the pacing of this novel because it is just relentless. Mm-hmm. I could not put it down. Yeah. I found myself sneaking it and carrying it with me everywhere. How did you accomplish this? And was it just part of your writer subconscious to know, like, let's just do this. I'm getting bored. I want to move on. Or was it a lot of editing in the editing process? Yeah, I think that's more intuition because that is the type of book I like to read. And I have this really, like, my most toxic trait is that if I pick up a book and don't finish it within, like, 24 hours, like, I am never going to finish that book. So I just, like, need Mm -hmm. to, like feel like that page just has to turn. And this is not even that the plot is necessarily what's making me turn the page sometimes. It's just like the voice or like I need to understand like what's going on or I just really connect with the character. So I think a lot of like quiet books or even slow books can grab me in that way. But I definitely like my priority was that people felt like they were like – on this ride and they like couldn't get off yeah oh yeah but I think we were on it I know but I think that even I love books like that too but I would and I think everyone wants to write a book where they'll turn the pages but to do it is true a whole nother thing you know right I don't think anyone goes I want to write one where people want to put it down well (laughs) some people no but a slow meandering yeah. exploration of something. You, yeah. you might, like, but right. yeah, it's not as easy. Yes. I, think, right. I will say like, just in terms of my process, like the book is, I don't know, maybe like 80,000 words now. I've 
written at least 300,000 words, like just sitting on my hard drive. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot that I, a lot of fat that I could cut. So you can just like yeah. cut out all the parts that I hope yeah. are not interesting. And those, you know, will like live in infamy on my hard drive. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it worked. Yes, um, it did. Because I read it very quickly. And I don't, I say I don't read as fast as Corinne. And it was within maybe 48 hours. So, okay. oh yeah. It. Yeah, no, I, it was. So I do, I, I do want to talk about something we love over here, which is astrology. And that may sound <laughs> weird, but we use it as a tool to sort of know ourselves, a tool among many to get to know ourselves and others. And I feel like you had a little reference in your book that made me think of it actually in a different way, which is kind of hard because I think of astrology a lot and I thought I thought of it in every way but there is this passage where Jess is texting with Dax about having friends who you don't have to explain things to and she asks whether he has that with his boyfriend Paul because they're both gay and he replies yeah either that or because he's a Virgo which made me laugh but but also I just never really thought about astrology and identity which is kind of crazy because I am a super proud Leo and I think when I meet another Leo like there is this kind of unspoken thing between people who have something in common so his joke here is could be because they're both gay or they're this you you meet people you just have similarities and Mm -hmm. you immediately think perhaps that oh I get you right like Mm -hmm. you're this or that but of course we know that that's not true. I mean, we don't think of astrology as a way to label people as, oh, I know you because you're this or that, because it's just a starting point. I mean, we all are multitudes of whatever that one point of commonality is. But when he said that, I thought that's funny because I do do that with people who are Leos. I think we speak the same language when really I don't know anything about them other than they were born somewhere (laughs) in that window. So I don't know. I loved that. It made me think of it that way. But I am interested in whether you relate. I think you're a Scorpio. I did a little digging. Oh, you. Instagram. (laughs) No, I saw a post on Instagram. Don't worry. Which could be creepy, but not that creepy. You're like, oh, you are a Scorpio. Yeah. 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 No, I saw a post. So do you relate to being a Scorpio? So, okay. So my answer to this question, I think, is going to like dovetail really nicely with what you were just saying about like feeling like you know someone because they're a Virgo. I feel Mm -hmm. like my relationship to astrology is that if I read something and the takeaway is that Scorpios are the best, I'm like, great. And if it's not, I'm like, this is BS. (laughs) I read or no, I was watching a TikTok where somebody was basically like, ranking all the signs by mm-hmm. how likely they would be to beat a polar bear in a fight. And I was like, if, if Scorpio is not number one, like I am yes. blocking this creator. And it right. was number one. And I was like, completely yes. vindicated. Yes. Although I would never, ever, ever like tussle with a polar bear, much less like win. So it's not even accurate, but like I got what I needed. And I feel like that is kind of my roundabout mm-hmm. way of saying like, yeah, I feel like that is sometimes how people relate to one another and the world yeah. and maybe partially the point that this character was making when he said that, even though it's sort of like a throwaway line. You know, we kind of like see what we want to see or we mm-hmm. take what we need, even if it's not necessarily like fully representative or full rendering of reality. So. Right. 
It, yeah. yeah, it's I think an interesting jumping off point for a conversation. But I will say that I don't know anything about Virgos. I literally just picked a Pictures sign. Used. Yeah, and yeah. It there. And funnily enough, like even though I feel like I talk about astrology a lot now, maybe it's because I live in California. Kind of funny story. Someone recently asked me like what sign my partner was, and I was like, oh, I don't know. And they're like, you don't know his birthday? And I was like. No, I know his yeah, birthday. The signs memorized. What does that line up to? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Do oh, you know goodness. now? I, Is he a Virgo? He's a Taurus. Uh, oh, okay. so he oh, had a birthday right recently. around now. This is his season. Yes, yeah. this is his season. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. This book, Everything's Fine, is a, a, a whole Scorpio. thing about <laughs> oh, tell really? me you're a Scorpio <laughs> without right. telling me you're a Scorpio. Yes. Because, well, I'll say specifically about what I mean is the sex scenes, the intimate scenes. Oh my God, I was dying. Yes. This book, we've gotten to some really deep questions, some really interesting, nuanced topics, but it is funny and it is fun and it is hot and it is just a a great story. And the scene Mm. at David's party with the body shot. Oh, my God. And then the scene, I could read the whole thing from when the first time and he's talking about how he was attracted to her at first and then he got to know her and that was different. And I want to read just a little bit. He says, you were just, he searches for the right word, more three-dimensional. And she asked, then the picture in your head? And he says, then everyone. And this is, oh. It's like the sex scenes are. It's spicy. Laced. Scorpios are spicy and yeah. sharp and, it's, and, and yeah. smart. The, mm. the sex scenes have to be smart too. It's what gets you going. It's what gets you through. So I loved those parts. Did you work on those scenes? How did you write them so yeah, well? Yeah, I actually I did take a craft class on sex or writing sex in literary fiction, which was helpful because I think my initial kind of way to think about sex scenes was that they should just be titillating. I know that's not everybody's thinking, but I was like, oh, they should just like make you want to have sex. And then the instructor was like, actually, no, like they're exactly like every other scene. They were supposed to like advance the plot or tell you more about the characters or about the relationships between the characters. And I was like, interesting. So I'm not just like trying to write like softcore porn. So basically, (laughs) then I think I was able to get more of a handle on like what what a sex scene not like should do but like what it can do and what you might miss if you're just like you know this one and that so I did think about it (laughs) yeah and I do I do love a good sex scene so these were some of the best I don't know how I just I found this to be a very American normal people Mm -hmm. because I said the same thing about normal people like the book by Sally Rooney, the sex scenes in that were so not obviously amazing. And Marianne was also kind of self-destructive, but trying to figure herself out, the coming of age aspect of it too. And I just, I loved that about this book. I hope that's a, a compliment because no, I yeah, do yeah, love I normal, normal people. people. And then the pacing of it too. Like I was going to save the way for yeah. people to take love stories seriously like contemporary love stories you know 
Yeah. 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 yeah, but let me tell you, I get pitched a lot of books, and they're always being pitched in the vein of Sally Rooney and normal people, and they never ever live up to it. Mm. This was not pitched to me that way, but as soon as I read it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is a very American." And the there's the capitalism, yeah. the like, politics. so yeah, the politics of it mm-hmm. is so American. Mm-hmm. And Sally Rooney could never write that. I love this book. I, I mentioned that. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking so, of loving. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, are we getting to loving? Because yeah. you've teased us, but we would have asked this anyway. With What are you loving? What recommendations do you have for us for books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, but whatever oh, you're obsessed with? I, yeah, I guess I like have books on the brain. I like can't even think. Yeah, go for it. Good. Yeah. But is it annoying to recommend books that aren't out yet? <laughs> Oh, we do it too. No, because no, then no. people can they get excited about it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I'll start with, I, I don't know how many books I should recommend, but I'll start with two that are not like going to be groundbreaking. And I'm just mentioning them because I feel like they're in conversation with my book and it may not seem like they are, but they are. And they're both new releases. So it's a lot of preamble. But one of them is Monsters by Claire Dieterer. Have you heard of this book? <gasps> yes, yes. Yeah, so it basically reckons with this question of, you know, can you or should you or how do you separate the art from the artist? And that's, you know, the monster she's referring to, like the art monster. And I think it's a question that increasingly, like, there's not a playbook for because it's like, okay, we like cancel all these people, but like, how do we know who and like to what extent and like, if you watch it on a streaming platform that like your friends, cousins, like boyfriend is paying for does that count? Like, so I think there's just a lot of questions about like, how do we, you know, live and love again in challenging times. And one of the more interesting takeaways of this book or this conversation that I think this book is now like kind of amplifying is like when, you know, capitalism tells us that our consumption is like the only agency we have or like that's how we express like all of our activism then it feels like you know watching a tv show is like a radical form of activism and it's really not but it's like it feels like it is and so then we have to imbue all of the art we consume with like a lot of like morality or like ask it to you know adhere to our values when really I think like maybe it's just supposed to move us. So anyway, she writes yeah. about this brilliantly. And I think why I think it's in conversation with my own book is just because I think, you know, that question of like the line. So obviously like we're not talking about art and artists in my book, but it's kind of like, can you separate like the person's like beliefs yeah. or like way of thinking from like mm-hmm. the love you may have for them? So yeah. that one's good. By the way, have you re- her? Last book, Love and Trouble, is also fantastic. Oh, yeah. I recommend that one. Back to you. Cool. Yeah, I'll add it to the TBR. Another book that is, like, getting a ton of buzz, so I shouldn't – I don't need to mention it, but sort of is interestingly, I think, in conversation with mine is Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Mm -hmm. Kwame Ajay-Brenya. And, you know, it's, like, Mm -hmm. just came out, I think, a couple weeks ago, and it's basically – It sounds like you're familiar with it. It's like, you know, a commentary on mass incarceration, but it's kind of like also a mashup with the Hunger Games. And what I think is really working for people about this book, like literally everyone who's read it thinks it's fantastic, is that it's sort of entertaining and it makes you as a reader feel complicit. And so I think that just forces you to kind of interrogate 
some things more deeply than if it had just been like straight commentary on why mass incarceration is bad. And I hope that my book yeah. does that as well. Absolutely. I was just going to say, I hope you're tying this back <laughs> yeah, to your book because yeah. yeah. that absolutely. Um, so yeah. those are great. You know, maybe hard to get from the library now because they're hot, but. We love these recommendations and we've found you because Curtis Sittenfeld had read your book. Man, right. she's a real and one. She, like, I don't need a publicist with and her around. She, <laughs> I mean, she had just, she was, yes, raving about it. So, so, so we love these, even if they, and it was before yours had come out. So we like it. Okay, cool. then yeah. It turns us and readers on to. And also Heather gave me this copy oh, uh, at the Northern California Writings Retreat. Did you, you went to that one or did you yes, just, did I, you do online or did you no, go? No, I went for real in, I think it was 2019. Yeah. So right, you know, not right before the pandemic, I like went the year before. The year before you. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, oh. if people have listened to this podcast and don't know about it, it's like the most nurturing, wonderful oh. writers retreat. It was in the Redwoods for many years and Heather, who runs it, just, like, knows so many people. And so she gets, like, great writers, agents, editors to yeah. come and kind of, like, speak. It's really – it was a good experience. Oh, I had, I went, I've gone twice now. I went again this year. And Kirsten Chen was the author and Michelle Brower was the agent. And a same – different location, same nurturing, wonderful experience. And she – pressed this book literally into my hands and she was like you have to read this this is all you you will love this and I was texting her like thank you this is yeah it was it was such an experience so yeah I forgot about that connection too yeah any others you want to mention yeah yeah I was gonna say like I'll keep going yeah this is the one I was thinking of it doesn't come out I think until August 1st so not too far but it's called Shark Heart by Emily Habeck. Have you heard of this one? No. Okay, so the premise is that a woman and a man, like, get married and they're deeply in love, but then very early in their marriage, like maybe within a month or so, the husband gets a terrible diagnosis that within, like, six months or maybe less, he will turn into a shark. And that's the premise. And the book completely lives up to the premise. And I I don't love... Like, it's lightly speculative, or maybe it's heavily speculative. I don't know. But, like, that's not my preferred, Mm -hmm. um, you know, genre, although I often enjoy it. But this one, man, it just, like, hit me in all the ways. It's so fantastic. It's, like, a very different kind of love story. And so I do love love stories, but I didn't think that I would necessarily resonate with this one. I guess I was predisposed to like it in a lot of ways, but I think that many more people because it's also a meditation on grief and love and family i mean i think a lot of people will resonate with it even if you think like hey i don't love this isn't gonna happen yeah yeah that sounds oh that's fantastic and these all sound like perfect you know like books that people will love if they love your book and that's the best kind of recommendation i love that Yeah. yeah Another book that's coming out today, or, well, today. Yes, not when, um, yes. <laughs> is The Three of Us by Ori mm-hmm. Abraje Williams. You've heard of this mm-hmm. one. It's yes. so unhinged. It's like, oh, my God, I loved it. It was just, and it's it's like, I don't know, 100 pages or something. So easy read. I haven't read it, but I did see it come out today, and I heard lots of rave reviews that I was like, okay, this sounds like something I would love. 
Yeah. It's yeah, it's unsettling, but in a good way. Yeah. Yes, oh, exactly. Thank you so much for all these recommendations. We're gonna yeah, noted of them. Yes. And you have really written a nuanced, complicated, deeply moving book, unsettling book, but also entertaining and as I said before, fun and funny and just a ride to read. And I hope people see it for all of those things because it's it really left an impact on me and I want that for everyone else to read it. Thank you so much. That was very generous of you to say. <laughs>